Welcome to episode 11 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. I'm currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. Okay, so we've got some housekeeping before we start on the episode. Uh, So first thing is that if you listened to last month's episode, you'll know that we just wrapped up our summer pledge drive that ran through June and July. At the beginning of the pledge drive, we had $228 in monthly pledges, and we just closed out the drive with $538. So that's a $310 increase. Uh, Yay! (laughs) But we didn't reach our third goal of $650. We're incredibly grateful for what you guys helped us achieve these last two months. And so we just want to say a big thank you to everyone who made new pledges, increased their pledge, and spread spread the word. It means so, so much to us. And we can't do any of this, the magazine, the podcast, any of it without you guys. So thank you. Yay. Seriously, it's so awesome. Uh, since we did reach our first two pledge goals, um, we're going to be putting out some new content. So that's exciting. Uh, when we reached $400 in pledges, we promised that we'd start an Instagram account. And so we went and did that. Um, you'll find videos, stories, and more there. Uh, so follow us for more Lady Science goodness. Um, our handle is Lady X Science, which is the same as our uh, Twitter uh, handle. Um, when we when we hit our second goal, we promised to share uh, bonus podcast content. So make sure you get all of the bonus um, to get all of the bonus mini episodes. Uh, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And the last sort of housekeeping thing I wanted to mention is that we are getting ready to start another special series uh, that will be running in October, and we're accepting pitches for it right now. We're doing a series on the intersection of sports, gender, and science. So uh, we especially want to hear from people that are sort of not traditionally well-represented in sports writing. So, you know, folks who are not white dudes. Uh, And even if you've never written about sports before, um, if you want to, you should pitch us. And we're looking for 600 to 1,000 word pieces. They can be historical or contemporary. They can even have um, personal elements, but they should sort of fit well with the lady science perspective on gender and science. So... You know, things like gender and statistics in professional sports or performance-enhancing drugs, exercise culture, sports medicine, technology, and sports. So you can find more details about that on our Twitter and Facebook pages. But the basics are send um, <clears throat> send your pitch, some clips, a little bit about yourself to ladiescienceinfo at gmail uh, with the subject sports series. And we pay. So that's fun, too. 
Cool. So a little bit later in this episode, we're going to be talking to Sophia Noble about her new book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Her work attacks head on the notion that algorithms that control search engines are not at all neutral. And she does this by exploring how those algorithms work and how Western society's biases against people of color, and especially Black women, get baked in every step of the way. Her book does an amazing job of dismantling the idea that algorithms somehow remove biases from decision-making processes and shows that they do exactly the opposite, which is amplify and codify those biases. But before we get to talking about why there is no such thing as an unbiased algorithm, let's talk a little bit about data. Because algorithms are built on some kind of data, whether it's the browser history that gets fed into a search engine algorithm or it's the lady science business expenses that we keep track of and calculate using an Excel spreadsheet. And here's the most important thing you need to know about data. Like algorithms, data isn't neutral. Uh, it seems like especially when we're talking about science, uh, super sciencey science, um, we have this idea that there is something called raw data uh, that scientists collect in a lab. and. This pops into my head because this is kind of like the science we learned at school, right? Um, so you have a scientist and they're in a white lab coat and they do something like count um, cells in a Petri dish or observe the change in color in a solution or track some like small animal's heart rate. And that's supposedly raw data. Um, it's apolitical uh, because there's cells in the Petri dish and cells in the Petri dish don't care who the president is. Uh, so just counting them, therefore, we assume must be a neutral act, right? Uh, but I, <laughs> <laughs> we can ask all kinds of questions about how that could not be neutral. Like, uh, why is the scientist counting those particular cells and not other cells? How did they decide to do this experiment? Who is supervising them? Um, who's paying the scientists to count them and why? Who taught them how to count the cells in the first place? Uh, is the scientist getting enough sleep at night? Like there are all kinds of things that we can, um, variables, if you will, that we can inject <laughs> into, you know, this idea of neutral data. So this example about cells reminds me of just like a Quentin Seschel. Quentin, oh Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> A really good example from history, um, which I guess in the last 10 years or so has gotten a lot of attention um, because of Rebecca Sklut's book, which is Henrietta Lacks and the HeLa cells. And um, just for some basic background of what happened with Henrietta Lacks and HeLa, uh, is that in eight, 1951, um, a Black woman named Henrietta Lacks um, went to Johns Hopkins for um, what she was believed to be uh, cervical cancer, and it did turn out to be cervical cancer. And so during her treatment, um, the doctor who was treating her extracted cells from her cervix um, and extracted them without her consent or knowledge, which was, you know, to some degree um, acceptable. Well, not acceptable. I wouldn't say that legal at the time, um, doesn't mean it was acceptable. Um, but they, they took them and those cells are still being used today. Um, they're the first immortalized cell line 
and it's become one of the most important cell lines in medical research. Um, so some of the issues surrounding HeLa, and HeLa comes from um, the first two letters of her first and last name. Um, so some of the issues that come into that with HeLa obviously are the idea that, you know, she didn't give consent and these cells of her own body were taken without her knowledge, but also that um, these cells continue to be used long after she died, long after we did establish um, uh, informed consent laws, and they have also turned a profit and um, her her family and she, she died uh, less than a year later in 1952 from the cervical cancer. Um, but her family was not even made aware of the cell line's existence until 1975. Um, and so there's a whole lot of issues that come into play with that, with commercial, commercial purposes, um, issues about privacy and patients' rights uh, and stuff like that. So if we're talking about cells, I think that might be one of the most prominent examples of how that wasn't necessarily just raw data that just like sprung up in a Petri dish. Another example that um, I thought of, maybe this is because it was about counting made me think of this, but uh, the census, um, not sci not like lab science in the same way, but um, on the surface, the census seems like a very, like, basic thing. You go and you count a bunch of people and find out where they live. But, like, then how do you define what it means to live somewhere? And how do you count people who, like, don't want to answer their door to uh, people they don't know? And maybe even particularly government officials. Uh, and so this thing that seems, on the one hand, maybe really basic counting people has just so many variables involved in it. Uh, so, and that's um, become something the a census bit has more, become yeah. a prominent topic during the Trump administration yeah, because yeah. Um, they're asking questions about immigration status, um, which right. you know, with what's been going on with uh, deportation and ICE and all of that, that that naturally puts um, immigrants. Uh, you know, with con they obviously have concern about that, and then also I believe that maybe a year ago or so there was uh floating the idea that uh gay people weren't going to be counted on the census and yeah. so like sure you can exclude gay people from your data collection and then just use that data and pretend that it's raw data but it's not because someone decided right. who got to count and who didn't get to count yeah the census is oh my god oh there is also when you're talking about like people um, not wanting to open their doors or not, you know, not wanting to participate in the census, there's a good book, I believe it's called The Averaged American, about how um, Americans were first sort of exposed to this kind of data collection for social sciences, and like we were basically trained to participate in like creating this kind of data like the history of the Gallup poll and things like that. That's a really interesting book. So in terms of what we want to talk about today, um, you know, even when we're talking about things that seem to us straightforward, like the census or counting cells, and I think we've seen already that that gets really fuzzy really quickly, you know, what happens when we try to collect data on something that's much more complicated? And I think that most of our listeners would understand um, IQ, intelligence quotient, as being really complicated. Um, 
So there are various kinds of tests that are supposed to measure and quantify intelligence, and they've been shown to be biased against people of color, women, non-Westerners. Um, but they're meant in this, like, all data is neutral, optimistic kind of way to turn something squishy and difficult to understand intelligence into something quantifiable and comparable and neutral. Uh, just a little bit of history here about um, the IQ test. Um, so the first working intelligence test was developed by a French psychologist named Alfred Beignet in 1905. And he had a pretty political reason for creating it in the first place. Uh, at this point in history, France had recently instituted universal public education, and Beignet wanted to ensure that so-called, quote, abnormal students were also served by the new system. He created an intelligence test as a way to advocate for specific education policy, and at his urging, the French government created a, quote, special education system where, quote, feeble-minded students attended classes separately from, quote, normal students, but in the same school. And I wanted to keep saying, quote, there, because I want people to know that these are not things that we say. <laughs> these are things, right. these, these yeah. are terms yeah. that were common uh, then, and um, that's why we're using them, because it goes to show how um, ableism was built into um, even just the language that they were using to talk about the IQ test. Um, so, yeah. so shortly after Beignet published his intelligence test, he got a visit from an American psychologist named Henry Goddard. Goddard also studied feeble-mindedness, and he was fascinated by this idea of being able to quantify intelligence. But he had a somewhat different interest than Beignet. He was trying to figure out what made some people, quote, feeble-minded and some people, quote, intelligent. And he was pretty sure it had something to do with heredity. Uh, so back in America, Goddard translated and published Vignet's test. And this is when it really takes off. Uh, before that, it was really kind of this interesting French social science political thing. Uh, so but and it's kind of amazing how fast it takes off. By 1911, he introduced the test to public schools in America. By 1913, it was being used to test immigrants at Ellis Island. That sounds Island. fine. In 19... <laughs> I know, that sounds great. And then the next one, it gets, it gets even better. By 1914, Goddard became the first psychologist to introduce evidence from Beignet's test into cool. a court of law. So this is like five years after this test has been published in English for the first time. It's already like having a serious impact on the like socio-political system of the United States. Um, all the while, he's also a psychologist who is studying um, the idea that intelligence is an inherited trait. Um, and that made him super duper popular with a group of other well-respected psychologists who were calling themselves eugenicists. Man, you know, I, when we started this magazine, I did not think we were going to spend quite as much time talking about eugenics as we do. But it's like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I mean, you can't talk about um, data without talking about eugenicists because they are all about data. Eugenicists love data. They like measuring people's heads and like their height and weight. They like tracking rates of mental illness. They really like tracking criminal behavior. Um and they were pretty excited by this test because now they had um, something that was quote-unquote objective by which they could measure intelligence too. And 
uh, Shocker, Goddard and his fellow eugenicists came to exactly the conclusion that they were looking for. So according to the data from the intelligence tests, women, poor people, black people were all uh, less intelligent than white people, and they produced inferior children, which is exactly what the eugenicists wanted to hear. And uh, data and objectivity never lie, right? <laughs> yeah, and so uh, <laughs> even today, and so uh, this wasn't that that long ago. This was early 1900s. No. Um, so I think it's really important when we're starting to bring this into the present day, like, you know, <laughs> These stories weren't that long ago. And even today, we have people who use intelligent tests to conclude that women are inferior to men or poor people are inferior to rich people or black people are inferior to white people. I just want to say, like, when you say even today we have people who use intelligence tests, um, stuff like this is being published in, like, mainstream medical journals. So it's not just, like, uh, people, like... Pepe Twitter yelling about this stuff like it's <laughs> right. it's embedded in our like academic system and like it's there are like supposedly legitimate discussions happening in academia about stuff like this right now yeah and this is the part where we have to talk about Charles Murray it kind of it? is uh it is where we have to talk about <laughs> Charles Murray um and even though he's going to be kind of the person we talk about, like it's not just Charles Murray. It's James Daramore who got fired from Google and is now deciding to, I guess, sue Google. Um, It's Sam Harris who um, runs a podcast where he talks for two hours because he has enough confidence as a mediocre straight white guy that he thinks people want to listen to him for two hours. (laughs) And he considers himself progressive. If I remember correctly. He's just yes. a, another racist, misogynist. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. So many terrible people. Yeah. But and like, on the one hand, Charles Murray is. I was going to say considered a crackpot, but I can't even quite say that anymore. But like fringy. But you got to remember, this guy is like has a sociology degree and worked for the government right. and is considered, like, a normal intellectual human out right. in the world. Didn't he work for the CIA, that most yeah. yes. trustworthy and uh, <laughs> yeah, in Thailand. kind branch? Oh, perfect. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure he saw brown people uh, in a totally, like, neutral way. Um, but I also want to oh, say yeah, that um, totally. people like Charles Murray and Sam Harris, and these two are in cahoots with each other, is that um, oh, totally the new atheist movement, capital A, uh, see like men like Harris and Murray as in Dawkins as being like their leaders. And so yeah. like we need to interrogate the new atheist movement in a really rigorous way um, because they're they're touting the same demagoguery and racist ideology as any other um, white male led movement can do. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason that they're kind of able to do that, just to back up for, for people who uh, don't know all of the details. Um, so Charles Murray, he came really to prominence in the 1980s. Um, he was a big uh, 
proponent of dismantling the new society programs uh, and therefore was super popular among the sort of Ronald Reagan political set. Um, His book, The Bell Curve, which is probably what he's most known for, came out in 1994 and that argued that IQ was heritable and unchangeable and that it was correlated to both race and to negative social behaviors. And the reason why people like Sam Harris, people like the new atheists, uh, get super excited about this is that the bell curve is notoriously stuffed with charts and graphs and numbers to make it this super um, like weird and sciencey in this way that appeals to a certain kind of mediocre white man who needs to justify his racism via number things. Um, so even Charles Murray, which I think this is hilarious, called it social science pornography. So like he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, and that, and I learned that from um, a an article that was written by Nicole Hammer in Vox last year that was called "Scientific Racism Is on the Rise on the Right," but it has been lurking there for years, which basically lays out the fact that all these eugenics ideas, which didn't start that long ago, really just never went away. They took different forms, but they just sort of hung out. Um, so for more about that specific history and that intellectual trajectory, I really recommend um, looking up Nicole Hemmer's stuff. And Nicole Hemmer, correct me if I'm wrong, she is a historian, a political historian of American conservatism, correct? Yes, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and I, okay. I want to point out also that Sam Harris, I'm sorry, they keep coming back to Sam Harris, but oh my God. when I was like making notes and researching more for this piece, like he just kept popping up more and more because he has hitched his uh, wagon to Charles Murray in the last year. Um, he has been uh, very much attacking Vox and Nicole Hemmer runs a column in Vox. Ezra Klein, who has publicly uh, denounce what Charles Murray and Sam Harris are pushing. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that there's these two, like Nicole Hemmer and Ezra Klein, who have been very outspoken about this particular issue. And Sam Harris continues to go after Vox. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. There's that, there was that absurd, um, the transcript that Ezra Klein published in Vox of, the, I only got about like a quarter of the way through it and I was like, I can't do this. But he published like this full transcript of a conversation he had with yeah. Sam Harris. Yeah, no, it was terrible. I listened Where, to it. And it's just, it's, oh God, I couldn't even listen. I was like, nope, can't listen to this. Um, but I think it's important to note so that bad. these men who claim objectivity and non-bias and denounce identity politics because they're above that are attacking media outlets and media figures because they're being criticized. Yes. So like, yes, that's just uh, some cognitive dissonance there. So, so I guess, um, we could probably rant about Sam Harris for the rest of the episode if we really wanted to. <laughs> Do you remember when him and <laughs> yeah, so let's. Dawkins and Dennett and who was the other one? Oh, wait, him, Dawkins, Dennett. There was one other one. Then they were like... Andrew Sullivan? I don't remember. 
Maybe, but people were... There's so many of them! Oh, I know. But there was, like, that core group... Oh, uh, Hitchens, Hitchens. And they were yeah. calling... Like, people were calling them the four horsemen of... The, I just... Ew. Oh, right! Anyway. Yeah. Horrible. Any, okay. Yeah. So, but the point <laughs> of bringing up all of these awful men... <laughs> knee surprise, really. Uh, so, the thing here about Murray and his defenders and all of these... Yahoo's is that they always want to talk about pure science, quote unquote, pure science, raw data. And they defend the bell curve and other studies like it by saying, well, we're just following the data and accusing people who question that their motives of being unscientific, which uh, <laughs> 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 nothing is worse than that. <laughs> I, I've got oh, the no. papers. <laughs> um, but I like this. Pure science just doesn't exist, which I think should be our new logline for lady science. Like, it doesn't. So even when we're talking about something much less controversial than IQ, scientists collect data about people that is, and other things, not just people, but that is influenced by their own assumptions and biases, and by these sort of structural biases of our society writ large. That's been true historically. It's still true today. Um, I think... One of the things that I've struggled with in talking about this kind of thing to people who didn't go to grad school for a history of science and don't spend all their free time thinking about this is that there's this um, really hard to squash misconception that there is there is a, a an important and comprehensible difference between the data that is collected and who does the collecting and how. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, I, I think it kind of gets into some like probably too obnoxious philosophy of science stuff to go into here, but the like, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say that there's some kind of difference between, um, reality and the way that you um observe that reality and that like any kind of bias you like even if you were prepared to admit that there was bias which I'm not sure that we've even got to that point as a society that there's some way you could just say like you could just bad apple the whole situation and say well like a real scientist would never do that but it's not like um we're not always talking about the Charles Murrays of the world who have like a specific um I would like evil intent, you know, not all like, uh, science, not all biases in science come from, you know, mustache twiddling, uh, eugenicists. Um, it's baked in all the way through. And it, uh, so it goes from being super evil to being very banal, but like, I think it's just important to say that like, if you, if you try to dismiss the problem as just being um, Murray and his ilk are evil. That's not going to solve the problem at right. all. And I think this is a good, a good time to talk about, like to take these things that we've been talking about a little bit step further. And maybe specifically with this idea of IQ is how these things get, um, passed into social policy. Um, so it's not just about mm -hmm. like thinking white people are smarter than black people, which in and of itself base value is just a terrible thing to believe. Um, but it goes a lot further than that um, because this affects social pol social policy. Um, and so if we think about 
uh, something like affirmative action and you actually believe that a black person is not as smart as a white person, then you think that affirmative action is inherently done out of bad faith. Um, that it is uh, swindling, well-deserving, superior, genetically superior white people um, just so that we can please black people, right? Um, and those, and the fact that we keep still having to have this argument about affirmative action shows that these ideas about intelligence and IQ are, are baked into that very conversation. The, the thing that came into my head uh, today when I was thinking, when I was getting ready for us to record was uh, the article that came out recently that was, um, what was it? Women are more likely to survive a heart attack if the doctor right. is a woman. I think was uh, what the study showed. And that's not because every single male doctor is like, well, I don't care if this woman dies, but because of like so many, so much of how we think about how heart attacks work is based on studies on men. And, uh, and if you're not listening to a woman and how a woman is describing her symptoms and how um, like, her body works, then you aren't necessarily going to be able to save her life. And that's just because of both implicit biases that mean that a lot of doctors are less likely to listen to women in pain, but also structural biases like the studies on women um, and heart conditions don't exist at the same level that studies of men and heart conditions do. Uh, and that all comes from decisions that people made uh, to do neutral things, like which studies to do. Right. And like, that's, that's how these things become systemic. Exactly. Um, is that yeah. it's not just an individual belief that Murray has or Harris has, that these become systemic things that affect real people on the ground. And I think we talked about it a, a couple episodes ago about how it wasn't even until the 90s that clinical trials, it was required to have women and people of color in there. Because yeah. that wasn't happening. It was white men um, that were, their bodies were being used as the data for medical science. And yeah. so if we have a medical system that continually um, dismisses women's pain, where um, black women are continually dying in childbirth, like those things were done by design because they were systemic. And we're having to dismantle them even now. And all of that starts from like, what, you know, this is, okay, this doesn't sound silly, but um, that starts from, you know, someone deciding which cells in a Petri dish they feel like counting. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So uh, we'll just go ahead and uh, transition into our interview with Dr. Sophia Noble, which we actually recorded at a different time. And uh, it was recorded while she was at a Starbucks. And so there's a lot of sounds of people like moving chairs around on the concrete and an ambulance and stuff like that. So um, just letting you know, <laughs> heads up, uh, it, it's not going to sound too great, um, but you're definitely going to want to listen to it because the conversation was really fantastic. dismantling the idea that data about human intelligence is or ever has been neutral. And now we're going to be turning to something else that many people assume is neutral, and that's the Google search engine. 
We're excited to have Dr. Sophia Noble with us to talk about her book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Dr. Noble is an assistant professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Southern California. In her book, she demonstrates how Google creates biased search algorithms that privilege whiteness and discriminate against people of color, and particularly black women. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Dr. Noble. Thank you. Thanks so much. So great to be here. Okay, so uh, let's start at the very beginning, I guess. Um, you use the term technological redlining to describe the power of algorithms in reinforcing uh, oppressive social relationships and racial profiling. So that we're sort of all working from the same baseline understanding, could you first explain what redlining is in a non-digital space? Sure, sure. So redlining has been a historical practice of um, institutionally discriminating using certain kinds of metrics or indicators within systems that really kind of skew uh, resources and power away from, um, for the most part, communities of color in the United States, but also women. And one of the ways we've seen this most profoundly, for example, is in the real estate, um, banking and financial services industries, where people who live in a particular zip code, for example, might be more likely to pay a higher premium on their insurance, car insurance, um, automotive ins uh, home insurance. Um, maybe they pay a higher interest rate when they're trying to get a loan for a house or a small business or personal loan. So these are the kinds of ways that we've seen uh, redlining happen over time. And of course, that's been ruled um, illegal since the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And so um, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the work is show how some of these key markers about group identities, uh, community-based identities, get kind of reinscribed into data profiles and um, ideas about who people are, and then get implemented through technical systems like software um, or artificial intelligence that does a certain kind of automated decision making and that also incorporates all kinds of demographic features, um, our race, our gender, and so forth, um, but does it in ways that are very, very difficult to see and, of course, even more difficult to intervene upon. So how is it that the uh, Google search works? How does it find and serve up search results? Well, Google search is actually a, a complex uh, phenomena, and most of us who study Google or study search engines have to kind of... Um, come to, we have to draw a lot of sophisticated uh, um, conclusions about how it works based on its output and what's publicly available. So at a very technical sense, the only people who know how Google search works are the engineers who work on search at Google. Um, but, you know, more broadly, I think we can um, glean from what we know about how search engines work that, for example, um, they're the primary mechanism that influences what we find is the advertising algorithm, which is Google's AdWords program that allows people to optimize content um, and pay for um, and outbid um, others to link certain keywords with their content. 
And that's a huge feature of how search engines work, which is to say that they're, you know, their content is moving through an advertising platform and advertisers with the greatest amount of capital, um, as well as uh, breadth of reach with their content, either through hyperlinking or having their content kind of embedded with other people's content, are the, the they're typically the winners um, in a search engine. And so we see this, of course, in some very obvious ways. Uh, you know, if you're looking for news stories, for example, you're much more likely to be directed to major international and national news outlets before you are kind of local um, news or kind of local perspectives. And um, if you're looking, you know, for dresses, and of course, this was a big story in the New York Times a few years ago, um, you, you might be more likely to find JCPenney's or Macy's, right, instead of a, a kind of a boutique um, in your neighborhood. So um, ultimately, search engines are really trying to, uh, I think, they're a balance between optimized content and paid for advertising. So to kind of bring those first two questions together, how combining the idea of redlining and how Google works, how then does this technological redlining happen in a search? Well, you know, when I first started my research many years ago, I was looking, for example, to see how women and girls were represented conceptually in a search engine. And, you know, many people have heard me speak now about this, and I write about this in the book. It was the impetus for the book and the book cover, which is, you know, what happens when you search for black women and girls, or you um, see what kinds of auto suggestions come about, or what kinds of images come about for these um, identities. And what you find is that, for example, with women and girls, um, oftentimes it's the porn industry that has a tremendous amount of influence over the type of content that comes up in relationship to keywords, uh, searches that use the words girls, uh, in particular girls or black girls, Asian girls, Latina girls. So that's one dimension of it, which is to say industries that have a lot of money, like the porn industry, um, are able to dominate and control um, keywords. And of course, those keywords are actually linked to real human beings and real communities, real groups of people. So that's one dimension of how I kind of argue that people lose control over their representation and... um, And, you know, they're not able to kind of purchase their way out of that. And, of course, now an ambulance is going by. So I told you that was going to happen. You called it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, So one of the, I think one of the really important threads in the book is about um, understanding the way that um, Google is first and foremost concerned with advertising and profit and the disconnect between what people assume Google is concerned with is which they I suppose think is some kind of like public service and so you describe Google search as an advertising algorithm not an information algorithm and I was wondering if you could just talk about that difference and why is it important to know and be able to identify that difference you know as a user of the internet yes 
So this is one of the most kind of fundamental reasons why I wrote this book, which is um, we're living in an, in a moment where people, particularly in the United States and in Europe, are extremely reliant upon the internet to kind of provide their basic information needs. Governments are increasingly pushing people to the web to facilitate um, government business. Um, the kind of the public sector is increasingly reliant upon the internet and digital technologies and media platforms um, as a proxy for all kinds of things. So we see, for example, um, in local communities where libraries uh, are being threatened with closure, um, the kind of general public sensibility is what do we need the library for when we have Google? And so, you, you know, we have this kind of increasing tensions around um, our conceptions of what public information and reliable and credible information is and where it can be found. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I felt that there was um, an increasing conversation about the trustworthiness and the reliability of Google to really serve as something akin to a public library online uh, where uh, people have, you know, this, there's many studies that bear this out that show people believe that what they find in a Google search, for example, is highly reliable, credible, trustworthy. Um, and yet, when you start to look at certain kinds of concepts, and especially concepts around um, traditionally marginalized and oppressed communities, you find that there's a lot of misrepresentative information, images, and ideas that flourish. And so this, to me, um, is significant when we think about how important it is to have trustworthy and reliable um, evidence-based research and journalism and kind of uh, fact-based information um, in order to, you know, see democracy flourish. And, you know, if there were ever a time, of course, where those kinds of ideas are threatened, it would certainly be um, as we look to see how social media and platforms like Facebook and YouTube have played a significant role in the spread of disinformation and misinformation, um, whether it's in the 2016 presidential election or around other kinds of ideas. So this is really what the thesis of the book is, is it's like, what's at stake when we outsource our information needs in a democracy to private corporations that are in essence advertising platforms and whose values are about the bottom line and returning shareholder value value rather than maybe some type of non-commercial um, set of values that might, similar to what a library right might ha hold. Um, uh, how different are the kinds of things that we find when we're relying upon an advertising platform to inform the public? Now, on a very sort of uh, practical level, I guess the way that this uh, happens that um, as an it acts as an advertising platform, not as an information platform, is that it's so hard to tell the difference between an advertised search result and a non-advertised result. Uh, but are there ways that uh, people can tell the difference? And uh, can you give some tips on what 
people should look out for? Yeah, you know, this is really complex because um, there have been times where Google has highlighted, for example, yellow boxed content, right, to signal this is an ad versus, um, you know, what it calls its organic search results, which I think, you know, we might even trouble the notion that an organic search result is not tied to keyword optimization in its advertising um, tools. So, you know, this idea that there's, you know, it's borrowing from an old model um, of newspapers, which is that the advertising is somehow wholly separate from the editorial. But in a search engine, you know, all of the content is really reliant upon, um, you know, these organic, so so to speak, results are deeply tied to ads that want to be visible when people are looking for those keywords. So there's a real commingling. And of course, a lot of the content that we might see might itself exist because it's been paid for, you know, in in essence, to be optimized or to make it to the front page. So this makes it really difficult then to say like, well, what is advertising? And what's a quote unquote, truthy fact, or uh, organic result, I think, that paradigm or that idea is a, is a bit faulty. I think all the content that we find has for a, through a variety of different factors. Google says over 200 different factors go into deciding what makes it kind of to the first page, right? Or how, how it finds what it finds and, and displays it to us. We don't know what those factors are, but we can be guaranteed that some level of um, profit for Google is at play in that. And so that makes it very difficult to say, like, well, what is an ad? Um, in some ways, I mean, I guess if you, if you know that the content you're getting says ad um, right in front of it, which now is the way that Google is doing it, um, that's, that's one way. Although I will tell you that there have been studies that have been done by consumerwatchdog.org, um, for example, that show that when they ask people to look at search results on a page and tell them which ones are advertisements and which ones are just kind of these quote unquote organic search results, most of the public can't tell the difference. So I think what we more are more likely to find is that the public generally believes that if some content makes it to the first page of Google search results, it's credible, it's been vetted, um, and it's reliable. And, and, you know, thus, I think they might not think of it as an ad. It seems like even in a very practical kind of way, like even if you know that the ones at the very top are almost always ads, sometimes you're in a hurry and you're just trying to find the thing. And so it can be so easy to, to fall into, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Anything on the first page just is what you want. Yeah. And part of here's the thing. Listen, I use Google all the time. People always ask me, well, what search engine do you use? And it's like, I use a lot of different ones, you know, probably three different ones. But the, the, the deal is, you know, if I'm looking for direction someplace, if I'm looking for a, you know, good coffee shop in a place in a town I've never been to, um, you know, Google can kind of quickly get me this type of banal information, right? And that reinforces our trust because we, if, if nine out of the 10 things we look for are just like, where is something, where is something on sale? Is this, how do I get to this place? You know, these kinds of things, um, that really reinforces our trust. Then when we do the one thing, like ask Google a complex question, and it gives us back some propaganda, well, that might, that might be harder to discern 
that that's in fact what we're seeing. And of course, I wrote a chapter in the book about Dylan Roof and his searches. And I think that's a really one of the, the worst kind of most extreme egregious examples of how that happens. Right. There was one time when I was researching uh, black women inventors in the uh, uh, 19th century. And the first results, one of the very first results that popped up was a discussion thread from the Daily Stormer debunking the idea that black people had invented anything. And like, that wasn't what I was looking for even a little bit. (laughs) I know. And imagine if you were, you know, 14 or 12 writing a paper for some, you know, sixth grade class or, and, you know, we see this happen. In fact, um, you know, many reporters uh, and scholars have talked about kind of what happens when, uh, middle school and high school kids are writing papers on Dr. King, for example, and they come across, um, you know, martinlutherking.org, which is a Stormfront website that's a kind of a propaganda uh, disinformation site about Dr. King. But it's been owned and optimized by Stormfront for so long that it's on that front page. And it's very hard. Even the King estate has not been successful in getting that URL taken down. And so what happens is it it's legitimate by virtue of being on the first page. And, and, you know, young people in particular, but even older people may or may not be able to um, tell. They may, if they don't know what Stormfront, for, for example, as a white power organization, um, kind of the largest online white supremacist community, if they don't know what that is, there's no reason for them to recognize um, what's happening there. Uh, one of the things that you talk about multiple times throughout the book is the importance of understanding historical context in which these oppressive algorithms pop up. Um, so can you explain why history is such an important part of your argument? Yes. Well, one of the reasons is because, you know, I give the example of what happens to black girls and black women in this kind of gross, um, hypersexualized stereotyping that happened for many, many years. I mean, Google has since changed the algorithm and suppressed the pornography And that's great. And, you know, unfortunately, it still exists for Latina and Asian girls. And so, you know, there's still work to do. But, you know, all of these these communities of women um, uh, who, quite frankly, are women. I mean, when you look at this pornographic content, it's, you know, allegedly women over the age of 18. So it's not girls in, in a fundamental kind of women coded as girls it's like a sexism 101 kind of um, elementary level example. Um, you know, that that phenomenon of, um, you know, infantilizing women, uh, making women, uh, regarding women as girls, um, kind of uh, uh, thinking about women of color as hypersexualized kind of um, objects in our society has been used historically as a trope in service of disempowering women of color, keeping women of color from meaningful political and social participation, um, legitimating the um, uh, second class status of women of color. Um, There's a kind of long history that I go into about that, specifically around black women. And these tropes are really important when we start thinking about, again, how they affect public consciousness about other people. And, you know, so it's not just that I was writing this thinking about black girls, which, of course, I was, 
um, and women, but I was thinking about what do other people come to learn about black women and girls when they go to a search engine as some type of authority site um, to learn more, um, to answer questions about things they don't know. And this is where I think that these kinds of narratives that are able to circulate without any ability to kind of think more thoroughly about um, how these are old tropes, old media stereotypes, and how they just keep circulating even in our these, you know, allegedly new media forms. Um, they're, they're anything but democratic and fair representations. And those are the kinds of things I think we need to challenge um, in our society. So in terms of um, your methodology in the book, you write that you are asking these questions about algorithms and searches from the specific standpoint of being a black woman. And I um, can you explain sort of why that matters and how that standpoint sort of specifically shapes the questions you're asking? And I guess on a larger scale, even the research projects that you decide to pursue? Sure. So, you know, one thing is that there's there's a, a popular idea among researchers, some res- more researchers maybe in some fields than others, that... Um, you know, that there's some type of objective, neutral place from which research is done, which, of course, everyone who does research has a point of view, has a standpoint, is a human being, brings all their kind of social context um, to the research experience. And so um, I felt that as I was reading over a lot of the scholarship about Google, um, it was very kind of universalized about you know, either the political economy of Google or what Google's business practices are, how Google is just like, you know, the, the, you know, its founders are the kind of boy geniuses of the, you know, 21st century and so forth. And yet some of these more complex dynamics about misrepresentation of women um, were not being asked um, about that platform. And, and I, of course, know that my own Um, commitment to asking questions and developing a research agenda that's in, um, in, that keeps in mind the people who are most vulnerable, um, whether that's women or people of color, um, poor people, um, those are typically the subjects that are not, um, given any agency or their or attention by a lot of mainstream kind of technology scholars. So, you know, I was interested, of course, my own subjective experience in the world as a black woman, um, you know, gives me a lot of insights about what these things mean. And I can tell you that I have presented my work, you know, years ago, I presented to um, conferences where I was the only woman of color present in the entire conference, for example, um, or for sure the only black woman. And, you know, people would say, like, don't you dare try to mess with this algorithm. Or they would say, well, maybe black women do more porn than anyone else. You know, just like ludicrous ideas, like a completely unsubstantiated, just reaching kinds of ideas. And I felt like this was, you know, this is why um, people sometimes sometimes who belong to um, communities that are the subjects of inquiry often have insights um, and ideas of places to look and, and of questions to raise that people who don't have that lived experience um, ever even think of. And so that's certainly been 
my experience as a scholar. And it's been exciting also, I can tell you, to see more women of color, um, more women doing kind of feminist research around technology. And I certainly am not even close to being the first. I mean, there were many women who were doing feminist inquiries of digital technologies that inspired me to think, uh, again, even in a more intersectional way than just like broadly a white feminist perspective on technology, but like, how does this get specific in its various executions or realities um, for Black women? Uh, one thing that I found really interesting about your book, and that I think we all did, uh, was that you offer... I don't know if maybe not solutions, but things that people can do or things that we as a society can do that uh, might improve the situation. Um, And so uh, can you talk about how uh, people who are marginalized by oppressive algorithms can in some ways fight back and claim space space in the digital landscape? Sure. So, you know, one of the larger concerns that I have is that the framework for rights, civil rights in particular in the U.S. and and in other countries has been um, kind of one in the legislative realm, right? And so it's been public policy that has been the primary provider, so to speak, of um, pathways, you know, to enfranchisement, let's say, in in whether it's voting, housing, uh, full citizenship, and so forth. So, um, of course, there's no way I couldn't write about kind of the public policy landscape right now around large digital media tech companies, which, quite frankly, in the U.S., we probably have the least regulatory kind of environment um, around potential harms. I certainly think about some of my work in terms of consumer protections. What are what's the kind of, you know, what's the barrier um, or the kind of the the lowest common denominator of consumer protections and, you know, protection from harms that that people should have and how do we build on that. And we certainly have the Federal Trade Commission, for example, that has played a very important role in regulating advertisers. And, and so just even getting something, a body like the FTC to start thinking about Google as an advertising platform um, is a mechanism for thinking about protecting consumers, especially vulnerable consumers. I mean, we have people who, we have laws around kind of predatory um, business practices, and we might be able to fold some of these conversations up around that. Um, So I talk about that, of course, you know, I, I felt like I had to write an epilogue to the book because it was going to press just as um, we were moving into a new administration, and the Trump administration. And then I was like, OK, wait a minute. Um, this might not be the right moment for that kind of um, fair um, uh, and civil rights oriented um, legislation. And I think we've seen, in fact, a rollback of those kinds of commitments in the last couple of years. So this might not be the moment, but certainly I think we should remain diligent in in calling for that. Um, You know, I also talk about what I think will be increasing like human rights abuses and um, concerns that, you know, we really don't have a legislative framework to talk about things like how automated decision-making platforms or algorithmic um, bias or, or, um, artificial intelligence 
increasingly is taking um, power uh, and decision-making power away from human beings um, and people and putting it in kind of the domain of machines. Um, and increasingly, I think as we see more um, deep machine learning, it will be more and more difficult for human beings to intervene upon the kinds of decisions and outputs that come out of um, AI. So, of course, you know, regulation and public policy is just kind of like a fundamental um, no-brainer. But, of course, you know, there's also some, you know, things that I offer up, which is around um, increased kind of critical media literacy. How do we institutionalize that in schools and libraries? How do we educate teachers? Um, How do we create alternatives that are in the public domain, right? So public interest search is something that I argue for that I'd love to see organizations like the Library of Congress um, and other kind of major information institutions uh, think about and play with and imagine um, because I think um, that's important. Certainly technology design, interface design, how we think about providing more context for search results rather than less. And I have a kind of a whole bit there in the conclusion of the book about, um, you know, what it would, what it would mean to display content in a better context. Uh, so that again, you know, if I do my search for, um, black girls kind of knowing I'm in the red light district of the internet, Mm -hmm. then I know that I'm going to get the porn. But maybe if I drag it, my, you know, maybe if my interface can allow me to access products and services, I might get the good hair products. I don't know. I'm always on the search (laughs) for that. That's, that's crucial. So, um, you know, there's lots of different ideas that I kind of, um, try to surface in the book. And, and of course, just at a fundamental basic level, if the public could be more aware that these technologies are not neutral, they're not apolitical, they have a tremendous amount of cultural power, um, we could engage with them differently. Uh, you were talking a little bit about um, that there are there are business regulations and that it, Google is a business. Um, and so one of the things that you propose is breaking up Google. So. Can you talk a little bit about how businesses get broken up and how it could work in this particular case? Well, you know, this isn't a new idea. Um, you know, when companies become so powerful that they are monopolies in a market, then, um, you know, the tendency has been to see that lack of competition as um, damaging, as kind of not giving consumers choice. Um, and, uh, you know, in the case of the kind of giant tech firms, not just Google, um, certainly Facebook has no real formidable um, competition. Um, the amount of capital across Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft um, is so, uh, and Amazon for sure, is so intense that it's very difficult for new entrants to uh, pose some type of um, competition. And when that has happened in the past, let's say, for example, with AT&T, when it kind of dominated the telecommunications market, then it was required to break up. uh, And um, that allowed for the possibility of new entrants into the telecommunications space. So this isn't really a radical idea. I mean, this is a very kind of common practice. But I, you know, who knows whether there's kind of an inclination. Again, we haven't really seen a rigorous 
Federal Trade Commission that's thinking about these things since um, the Nixon administration, if you can believe that or not. Um, it's hard to believe, but you know, and um, you know, Professor Molly Neeson uh, is uh, uh, she's an amazing media historian and has really written the history of kind of media policy um, and the Federal Trade Commission um, and kind of how it's acted and uh, in the past. And I think that you know, she's an important voice in helping us kind of make sense of these histories too. Um, but you know, these are things that I think have to be considered if we're going to talk about um, any viable um, counterweights. And I think right now, you know, my faith has been in public institutions. Um, I still believe in the public library. I still believe in public universities and research universities, community colleges, um, K through 12 education. I think that we, um, we have a lot of resource and knowledge and, and capital in those spaces. And uh, we should um, maybe th turn to them to help us in this um, navigation of the information landscape. So I guess my last question, I think you already answered it. So um, was there anything that we didn't bring up that you especially wanted to talk about? Well, you know, listen, I love this whole idea of lady science. And um, <laughs> I guess, you know, I'm just like, I need a shirt that says lady science. Um, I know that. Um, so, you know, one thing that I would just add is that some of the really interesting scholarship and research that's happening around kind of what, what, what the past has been in relationship to kind of our imagination about what the internet, you know, could have been, um, certainly what its current uh, complicated and, and in many ways exploitive um, business practices are, um, a lot of the really good work is coming from women scientists, um, women social scientists, women researchers, women computer scientists and technologists, um, whether it's people like um, uh, Joy Bulwamini at um, MIT Media Lab, who is a black woman who's done this amazing work around facial recognition and, for example, how cameras don't recognize black faces, right. um, whether it's Sarah Roberts at UCLA, who's writing about commercial content moderators and the outsourcing of ideas about what's acceptable content on the web um, to kind of a global workforce that's making all these curatorial choices and making it more visible that the internet, in fact, is not a democratic place, that there are all kinds of moderating effects, not just algorithms, but human beings. Um, or it's, you know, people like Marie Hicks um, in her great book, um, Programmed Inequality, where she's talking about you know, the history of women in British computing and how uh, the UK basically tanked its computing industry because women dominated it. And so they thought it wasn't really a thing. And they're, you know, still playing catch up to this day. Um, there's a lot of lady scientists who are doing brilliant work. I can't even begin to name them all, but there are dozens and dozens and dozens um, who are helping us under, under, to better understand the, inter the internet and technological landscape. And I think we should be listening to them. So I would just, um, you know, say that, uh, you know, if there, if people are interested, I mean, certainly in the book, I try to highlight as many of those voices as possible and send a signal out that um, people should be listening to the lady scientists. 
We absolutely endorse that message. Yes. 100%. <laughs> Stamp of approval. Awesome. So at the end of every episode, we, your exhausted hosts, will unburden ourselves about uh, one annoying thing. And I think we mentioned this last time, too. It's really hard to find just something that's annoying and not, like, actively horrifying. So um, these uh, what we're going to talk about today actually does kind of border on horrifying. But we are going to talk about um, the show, the TV show Insatiable, um, and I believe, yeah, Netflix, and uh, a horrible 3D body scanner that was partially funded by Peter Thiel. <sighs> this is the worst timeline. And just sort of this, um, I think, kind of resurgent fat phobia that we're seeing in the age of body positivity. So as far I've... As far as Insatiable goes, I haven't watched it because I've been warned away from it by very smart and articulate writers on Twitter who have written some scorching reviews. The show is basically, um, it's like a t- teen teen comedy, I guess, about a high schooler who um, is fat and then she gets punched in the face and has to have her jaw wired shut and she loses a lot of weight and then comes back to school and, you know, is, like, hot or whatever and uh, takes revenge on all her bullies. But the, like, twist that's supposed to be body positive is that she's still a horrible person even though she's not fat anymore. <laughs> like, that was their sort of way of saying something empowering about being fat. fat? I don't know. I've read a couple of reviews, and it's apparently just horrible. And the I think the most important thing to mention is that the main character is played by a thin actress who puts a on a fat suit. Who puts on a fat suit? So. Yeah, I mean, anytime there is a fat suit on a skinny person, we should probably just go ahead and nope out of that situation. Um, and I do want to say that it actually, right now as we're recording, it's not out yet. Just the trailer. And then, um, like, some reviews of critics who have pre-screened it, who all apparently agree that it's terrible. Um, But by the time this episode comes out, it'll have started on the 10th. So um, one of the things that I immediately noticed a part of the trailer is that, because the trailer in the first 30 seconds shows her as uh, fat. And it is so, it it is all of the horrible stereotypes that we have about fat people that she just sits on her couch and eats ice cream and eats horrible food and watches TV and she wears um, frumpy clothes. She looks a little dirty, like her hair is kind of greasy. Like all of these like stereotypes that we have about fat people um, are just played out in the quick 30 seconds beginning of this trailer. I was going to say, among other things in uh, Linda Holmes's wonderfully scathing review on NPR, uh, which if you follow her on Twitter, it turns out that she's been she was all through the TV Critics Association um, tour thing uh, that she was at. She was definitely subtweeting Insatiable the entire time. Uh But at one point, but anyway, to go back to like the fat suit thing and the stereotypes about um 
fat people that are baked in, seem to be baked into that. Linda Holmes makes the point that, like, because it's a fat person being played by someone in a fat suit, that the person has no sense of, like, their own physicality. And, like, the idea that, you know, a fat woman could, like, know how her body is shaped and how to move in it in a way that, like, makes her look like a normal human being uh, is just doesn't even occur to the people in the show. So it looks like a skinny woman in a fat suit shambling around, which is a perfect representation of how so much of our culture thinks about fat women. Right. And I was telling Anna about this when we were deciding that we were going to talk about this, is that the actor or actress who plays the main character in the fat suit, I can't remember what her name is. I think it's Debbie Ryan. She defends the show and says something about um, that it's a, you know, about how difficult and scary it can be. And this is a direct quote, uh, to go move through the world in a body. And like, there's just such a big disconnect there because she she is not a fat person. She is right. thin and she moves through the world, her everyday lived reality with thin privilege. And that these types of comments from thin people are equating, yes, a, a, a world in which women are always going to be made to feel bad about their bodies with someone who is fat and moves through the world as a fat person and has those biases that someone who is thin does not have. Yeah, I was thinking that, um, I don't know if I would call it like backlash per se, because it's, I think is kind of a different conceptual animal, but there is like a reaction, I think, happening to a lot of this, like we have a lot more um, visible fat people with platform now to talk about um, what, you know, what their lives are like. If, you know, Lindy West or Tess Holliday or people like that, I, it does seem to me that there is not only like um, a reaction to that, obviously women like that get unbelievable harassment on social media. I and mean, that's like, that's why Lindy West quit Twitter. It's disgusting. But there's also stuff like Insatiable where this sort of bad faith engagement with body positivity or body acceptance ideals getting baked into our kind of cultural products where like to me this doesn't seem like an honest misunderstanding of like the body politics of fatness it seems in in bad faith to me in like it seems like it is taking a shot at fat people. And I think that there has been like a kind of resurgent fat phobia as we sort of hear more from fat people and from like body politics advocates and activists and stuff like we're seeing stuff like this kind of cropping up. And I think that's also what's behind this like awful 3D body scanner thing that you sent me, Layla, which is terrifying. Yeah, the body scanner uh, will, like, take uh, a 3D scan of your body. And uh, so, uh, ladies, if you thought that looking in a full-length mirror was bad enough, 
just wait until you can see all of your cellulite and all of your little wrinkles and all your stretch marks in 3D. So wait, so, okay, they they didn't share this with me. Um, so Oops, sorry. Is, no, 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 it's okay. Now you have to tell me all about it, though. So, it, like, it, it takes, like, a scan of you and, like, you're a little hologram of yourself. Also, while you you're standing on a scale. So it's the yeah, full package. So you, of course. Right. And they're oh billing God, it as, like, why? it's for people who are, like, obsessed with fitness and they want to, like, check out their gains or whatever. But, like... But again, because right, that's it's also equating, a healthy impulse. It's equating it's equating fitness with uh, weight. Yes, again, yeah, like which is yep. again something that um, body politics advocates and um, women writing about fatness have just been like tearing their hair out about trying yep. to tell people that that's not the case. That that is a false correlation. And um, speaking of bills. The actual bill for this scanner, if you so wish to purchase one, uh, is $1,395. Oh, God. So, to torture yourself every day of $1,395, you can obsess over every imperfection on your body and never leave the house. I guess I'll just add one thing about the 3d body scanner is that uh it's just another piece of surveillance technology that you could volunteer yeah. to put in your own home so yeah. that's oh, nice God, that too it was help funded um, by a man who uh founded a company palantir so <laughs> yeah that's something you should really think about if you don't know what a palantir is you should uh yeah. read well i guess the best description is well, you can watch the movie, too. They talk about it in The Two Towers. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It's for spying on people and hypnotizing <laughs> hobbits. Yeah. And he purposely <laughs> named his surveillance company that. I really need these men on uh, the right to stop appropriating my nerd culture. <laughs> no, for real, though. <laughs> it's just, it's like, it's it remi- not okay. It reminds me of, like, Soylent, too, where you're like, that's the name you're going to pick for your right. thing? And you want to right. try and convince us that it's not evil? What are right. you doing? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Stop. Just just stop being Bond villains. We are not enjoying living in the worst timeline. <laughs> <sighs> So we'll go ahead and uh, end it there today. Um, but remember that if you liked our episode today, to please, please, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how new listeners can find us. Um, and if you had any questions about the segment today, tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadyScience.com. And remember that we are an independent magazine and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at at LadyXScience. Science.